Hey man, how's it going guys? Y'all, guys, you guys, you people. Uh, I'm Scott Horton, it's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Did you know that? Yeah. I'm here on the Liberty Radio Network live on the weekdays from noon to two. Living in the future here, 2016. Is that incredible or what, man? 2016. Sorry, I know. It's just the odometer effect. It just trips me out every freaking time. Um, yeah, anyway. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Today on the show, uh, Christine Ahn, who I already interviewed, actually, this morning. I rarely do that, but in this case, it was important, so... Uh, Christine on, uh, all about North Korea. So, uh, that's coming up. Uh, she's from Foreign Policy and Focus. She's the executive director of Women Cross DMZ. I like that. I meant to ask her about it at the end, but didn't. Oops. Uh, and then there's Shea Machine Riley. He's going to be on the show to talk about the dollar and the empire. Interesting stuff. Boy, I'd better reread it during one of these breaks because uh, I think I remember at least the main point. There are quite a few in there, though, so yeah, I'd better look at it. Anyway, uh, Shane Machine Riley, he wrote this interesting thing. It's at liberty.me. Um, okay, so what? MSNBC, they're so stupid and wrong about it. All H-bombs use uranium, you think, huh, guys? You're fired. You don't get to tell people what's true. Because, first of all, you're the wife of Alan Greenspan who destroyed trillions and trillions of dollars in wealth around the world. And second of all, your people can't type in their facts very well without getting them wrong. Isn't that funny that Alan Greenspan's wife has a job? As a reporter on TV while well, a news anchor. That's amazing to me. I mean, I know everything is corrupt in America. Everything is a farcical repeat of some historical tragedy in America today. But really, Alan Greenspan's wife gets to tell me what's right and what's not right. Huh. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, also this guy, Greg Archetto, is going to be on the show. And now here's an interesting guy. Check out the thing that he wrote, man. Uh-oh, where'd it go? Oh, yeah, here it is right here. The conscience of an arms dealer. How a bombed airport in Yemen and my year with Rand Paul made me quit the Pentagon. By Greg Archetto. Unfortunately, he wasn't hanging out with Ron Paul, so not perfect, but a pretty damn good article. Lots to talk about here. A little bit to argue about, but I think we're going to focus on, um, you know, learning what's new here. Very interesting piece. Um, yeah, sorry. Okay, so lots of news. Let me get some of this stuff out of the way. 
uh, the North Koreans tested a nuke yesterday. There's about a point zero 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 one percent chance that it was actually a hydrogen bomb. They claim H bomb. And then it's amazing. It is amazing to me. I guess instructive is the better term. Um, but it's just, it's really something else. I don't know. You can call it whatever you want with all your fancy vocabulary terms, man. Just to me, yeah, it's something. The way the entire media goes, oh my God, North Korea tested an H-bomb. No, North Korea claims. North Korea says they tested an H-bomb. And we don't know whether they did or not. That's the news, okay? Was there a big explosion? Apparently. Was it an H-bomb? Apparently not. All early indications are that no, it was just an atom bomb. But, guess what? A government said it was an H-bomb. Which government? Why, the totalitarian police state of Kim Jong-un claimed they set off an H-bomb. Oh, well, good enough for me, cry the editors of the New York Times and their ridiculous loser, liar, reporter, David Sanger. Although he did have some qualification in the article, the headline certainly did not. Uh, and every reporter, every news source I follow on Twitter, which is as many as I can. Um, in fact, this morning on MSNBC, they, they're using weasel words because there are enough experts now who are saying, come on, man. This is very unlikely to have been an H-bomb. As soon as they said H-bomb, immediately the first tweet I saw that said H-bomb was Vice News last night, and I immediately tweeted it right back out with, yeah, right. And then after that, Joe Serencioni and all kind of other nuclear experts, actual nuclear experts, expressed severe doubts that this was an H-bomb. But, uh hey, whatever, man. A government employee said a thing was true, and that'll be good enough, even though the government in question is an official enemy state of the United States. Doesn't matter. An official said a thing, and that is good enough for, I, as I saw it myself, to every single reporter in America. That's how reliable these people are. Not at all. And I'm not a nuclear weapons expert of any kind. I just read. You know, I know an encyclopedia entry worth about nukes, okay? But I know that H-bombs are measured in megatons. I did see one thing on Twitter last night that said, well, there is one precedent where the Chinese apparently set off an H-bomb that did include fission and yet still only had a yield of a couple of tens of kilotons somehow. Well, it sounds like a failure to me more than a, that was the design. But that supposedly happened once. Anyway, this test 
had the exact same 5.1 on the Richter scale, exact same as last time. They even showed the ground waves at War is Boring. They have the seismograms, and they compare it to the other blasts. There are three previous tests. The first two were thought to be fizzles. The third was thought to possibly have been more successful, except much less data was available about that third one. They buried it much deeper or something before they set off. And so uh, there was very, you know, virtually no radioactive debris in the air to analyze later. Um, and etc. But this one was apparently the same size as the last one. On MSNBC this morning, they quoted the government, or actually they quoted the Brookings Institution quoting the government, saying it was a 10 kiloton blast. Well, that's the size of Little Boy, the Hiroshima bomb. That's not even as big as the 15 kiloton bomb that killed Nagasaki. That Harry Truman killed Nagasaki with. Sorry, I didn't mean to sound like I was spinning for a cop here. The nuke discharged itself. But anyway, if it was an H-bomb test, it was a spectacular failure. Much more likely, it was uh, either a simple uranium bomb or a plutonium implosion bomb with no fusion whatsoever. But anyway, sorry for taking a moment to think about it before repeating a bunch of garbage. Hey, y'all, guess what? You can now order transcripts of any interview I've done for the incredibly reasonable price of two and a half bucks each. Listen, finding a good transcriptionist is near impossible, but I've got one now. Just go to scotthorton.org slash transcripts, enter the name and date of the interview you want written up, click the PayPal button, and I'll have it in your email in 72 hours max. You don't need a PayPal account to do this. Man, I'm really going to have to learn how to talk more good. That's scotthorton.org slash transcripts. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented libertystickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. Libertystickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking... Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. Coming up here in a minute, I'm going to play for you this interview I recorded this morning with Christine on about uh, the DPRK here. Um... But there's a couple things I wanted to mention here real quick. Somebody's got to figure out how to do something with this, man. Um, I don't know. My brightest idea was writing some tweets. That didn't seem to do any good. But the Donald, he keeps saying everything about everything out of this guy's mouth is very premeditated, even when he's babbling incoherently. But he uses this sort of exact terminology in his new TV ad about banning Muslim immigration. He says, until we can figure out what's going on. And so far, it doesn't seem like anybody's picking up on that, really. And you got Marco Rubio, who has answered this, but not in answer to Trump, but has just, you know, 
declared over and over. They hate us because we're free. They hate us because we send our daughters to junior college. They hate us because we have primary elections and a bunch of stupid crap. You'd have to be brain dead dead to believe that. Um, but anyway, so hey, let's have a big national conversation. Everyone, let's see if we can try to figure out what's going on. The answer is simple. The answer is some Muslims identify with Muslim victims of American foreign policy so much that they join up the anti-American insurgency against us. That's it. They're soldiers in the war just like ours. They kill civilians just like ours. Uh, just because America's the evil empire doesn't make Al-Qaeda, you know, Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia. They're not. They're more like the droid army. Just as bad. The excuse for worse. Uh, but what's going on? What's going on? We gotta figure out what's going on. Everyone knows. In fact, a libertarian that I know said to me, yeah, Islam, boy, it's bad though. It's got some problems and this and that and it's, it's sort of a, it's a branch of Judaism like Christianity is, but it's, it's got things I don't agree with. Founded in conquest and all these things. And yet somehow in the 1980s, the more radical a Muslim was, the closer to America they were considered. These are people of the book. And our joint enemy is godless communism. And look, they, they revere Abraham and Moses and Jesus too. So, you know what? Close enough for us compared to them communists, right? Let's give them money and weapons to kill communists with. There's a whole book about this, not just Afghanistan, but all across the region. Devil's Game. How the U.S. helped unleash fundamentalist Islam. The more Islamic, the better in the Cold War. Up until 1991. Christmas, the end of 1991. So, but now all of a sudden, oh my God, everyone who believes in Islam in the world, they're all part of a singular collective Islamo-fascist caliphate against us. Because Islam makes them hate us and want to conquer us in a bunch of crap. 1991. Does that year sound familiar to you? The year the Soviet Union collapsed? That's the year America put white Christian combat forces on the ground on the Holy Arabian Peninsula, the land of Mecca and Medina. So, you know, us Texans, we don't have religious sites in Texas, not really. We got pseudo ones like the Alamo or something like that. But could you imagine if Greg Abbott made some kind of deal with a foreign power that they could put foreign military bases in our state, we would kill them until they died or fled. That's it. End of argument. 
Doesn't matter where they're from. Never mind if they were a bunch of Saudis. If they were Mexicans or Canadians, a foreign government's army base, air force base, in our state, we would explode them to death. I think all of us, yes, yes, every man in Texas would make sure that Greg Abbott's new compromise with the foreign government ruling us came to an end immediately, or we would die trying. Wow, it's so hard to understand why someone from Saudi Arabia would feel the same way, especially when it's considered holy land. Oh, yeah, no. You know, I read, uh, somehow, coincidentally, a white Christian, warmongering, nationalist, imperialist claiming that their belief in Islam makes them want to attack the innocent. And I believed that because what? That's plausible? At all? That's not plausible at all. Everybody knows that Bill Clinton starved 500,000 children to death in the 1990s. Do you think that people don't care about that? Boys from Arkansas join the military if someone attacks New York. But you don't think uh, that a Saudi or a Yemeni would mind, or, or you think they wouldn't mind when America is strangling, blockading a million civilians, including half a million children to death from their territory? How's that to one-up my scenario? Arabian troops occupying Texas so that they can constantly and consistently... Well, I guess Americans don't really care about Mexicans, though. I'll switch it around. Uh, Saudis, um, you know, at the invitation of Scott Walker, I guess, occupy uh, Wisconsin, build an Air Force base there so that they can consistently bomb and blockade Canada for a decade straight and starve a million of them to death. Yeah, it it would be your Christianity that hates them, right? Or your Judaism, or your Buddhism, or your atheism, or whatever ism you believe in. It would be that that would make you want to oppose such an evil, right? I'm sorry this sounds so patronizing, but Jesus Christ, it's 2016 and people still can't get their head around this. Bush Sr., Bill Clinton, murdered more than a million people. That's why they hate us. Junior and Obama just doubled it. That's why. That's why. Figure it out. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. And they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. 
Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, y'all, introducing Christine Ahn. She's the executive director of Women Cross DMZ and is a regular writer over at Foreign Policy in Focus. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, good. Thanks so much, Scott. Uh, very happy to have you on the show here today. Um, and, and can we start with this? Uh, you're not buying this nonsense that the DPRK actually tested a hydrogen bomb yesterday, are you? Well, it's hard to know what really happened because it hasn't been independently verified. But what we do know is that there was an earthquake. The um, UN monitoring agency um, showed that, you know, there was some kind of activity and North Korea itself uh, made a special announcement announcing that they did test and successfully tested a hydrogen bomb. But it's going to be days until it can be independently verified. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, um, and this might be my mistake going off U.S. government information, but they said this morning on MSNBC that the U.S. is saying it was a 15 kiloton blast, which, or I'm sorry, even it was smaller than that, 10 kilotons, the size of the Hiroshima bomb. So doesn't right. sound like a thermonuke. Yeah, well, and that's also coming from South Korea, from their, um, you know, foreign ministry and their national security agency that uh, they suspect it was an atomic bomb test. And, and so. I don't know if, if this is actually, you know, definitive or not, but uh, I believe that the more or less consensus, although there was still kind of a question mark on the end, but I'm pretty sure the consensus among the wonks was that the first two tests were fizzles and were incomplete uh, chain reaction, basically failures. The first two atom bombs they tested. And then the third one seemed like maybe it was a success, but they didn't have enough information from that one uh, to really be able to tell. But um, I think right. I read I, yesterday I, that this earthquake, uh, the, the vibrations from this one were the exact same virtually as the previous test. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that uh, the point that you make is really important, which is it's very difficult to fully know. And if it is true that North Korea did succeed or is close to producing a hydrogen bomb, that it poses some really grave concerns, especially for the United States, because that means that they can miniaturize um, a missile and put it onto uh, and strike the, the mainland in the United States. And obviously the devastation of a hydrogen bomb is, um, is catastrophic. And the 45 million people in South Korea would be obliterated basically. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, it's a wake up call for Washington, D.C., particularly for President Obama, that under his watch, you know, three out of the four nuclear tests have been conducted by North Korea and that uh, his policy of strategic patience has been an utter failure. And, you know, <laughs> it's time to do something different. And why not try engagement this time? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm interested in that strategic patience. It's funny how they always have to have some fancy name for every ridiculous thing. Um, strategic patience, that means do absolutely nothing, right? And I'm curious about that because 
in the later part of the Bush Jr. administration, Cheney was sidelined and Christopher Hill went over there and made a deal with the North Koreans. And it wasn't a complete deal, but it was a really good start. And then it ended up getting messed up. And it was really Bush Jr. himself who messed it up probably more than anyone. But it seemed like they were on the right track. Of course, the South Koreans have had previously the sunshine policy and this kind of thing and trying to warm up relations. And yet Obama... Is it fair to say that his policy has been to the right of the at least second term Bush Jr. administration on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, the Obama administration's Northeast Asia policy generally has been very hawkish. And uh, yeah, he has basically maintained and you're absolutely right. And I would say that the collapse of that agreement was because of the split, even among the conservatives about how to deal with North Korea. And yeah, his policy, the Obama policy is this policy called strategic patience. It's basically about uh, military posturing through the form of these military exercises and through sanctions and it's containment and deterrence. And uh, it's based on this mindset of collapsism, which is that we're just waiting for North Korea to collapse. And you know, based on my trips to North Korea and every other expert's um, observations about the the economy and uh, and and the well-being of the people, is it's not about to collapse. In fact, you know, the the fact that the economy has improved, the fact that there are now three million people North Koreans on Korealink, which is their mobile phone service, mm. um, is a sign that you know things are improving, and so they're obviously going to be more behind Kim Jong Un than ever before, because they see their quality of life improving. And uh, so it's not about to collapse. And so we're basically hinging our policy on the fact that we're waiting for the regime to collapse. Mm -hmm. And instead, what we're seeing instead is uh, North Korea being um, investing more in its nuclear technology. And, you know, as David Culp of uh, the Friends Committee on National Legislation, who is a nuclear weapons expert, you know, told me uh, just a few months ago, you know, North Korea is, is testing its nuclear weapons because it's improved, trying to improve upon it. And, you know, even though we don't know fully how advanced or sophisticated it is, we can assume that it's um, obviously nowhere. It's decades still behind the U.S. technology. But they are testing them to improve its capacity. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so, you know, it's not a done deal. It's not a foregone conclusion that North Korea can be a nuclear power. And so why don't we try to engage them at this juncture? Why don't we try to respond to their appeals for a peace treaty, for a non-aggression pact? It's just a matter of talking. And um, that's why it's so important that you... Uh, are giving me some some voice because I feel that the peace movement in this country, um, you know, just as they mobilize for the Iran deal, we need to get behind some kind of deal with for North Korea. And I think that the historical legacy is really important to weave in here because, you know, it's not just that North Korea was on the axis of evil and, you know, saw what was happening in Afghanistan or Iraq and U.S. military occupations and invasions, but their own lived experience during the Korean War, where 80% of North Korean villages were completely bombed to bits, where one in four North Korean family members lost a relative from being killed from the U.S. air bombing raids. And so the devastation 
was catastrophic. And so that's a different kind of historical memory than what we have here in the United States, where, you know, we call it the forgotten war. Yet, right. you know, our government is a signatory to that ceasefire agreement in 1953 that temporarily halted the war. The U.S., China, and North Korea signed this, and they agreed within 90 days to return to sign a peace deal. 63 years later, that has not happened. And the consequence is this nuclear testing, is this militarization, is the military exercises that our government conducts regularly with South Korea, simulating an invasion of North Korea. It is um, the three generations of Korean families that have been separated and divided. And so all of this insanity can actually come to a halt if the United States were willing to sit down and sign a, uh, a peace deal with North Korea, which North Korea has been appealing to the United States for um, in, in recent months. You know, um, I, I just think that there's no doubt about the, the possibilities here. And it's honestly, it's very confusing to me. I'm sure it's all wrapped up in the China pivot containment policy and all of this. But I even understanding that, I, I don't understand where it fits. I can't understand why Obama would have given up this whole his entire presidency would have given up the opportunity for a pretty easy victory here a pretty you know a, a political success in coming to some kind of agreement with the north koreans and I, you know as far as them possessing nuclear weapons uh or you know um all right hold it right there we'll be right back it's my interview i recorded this morning with christine on from foreign policy and focus hey i'll scott horton here for wallstreetwindow.com Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. This is my interview recorded this morning with Christine Ahn, peace activist on Korea issues, writer for Foreign Policy in Focus. And uh, so I was in the middle of asking the question, why would Obama drop the ball on such a great opportunity to negotiate a peace deal with the North Koreans here? As far as them possessing nuclear weapons uh, or, you know... Um, somehow rejoining the NPT as a non-nuclear weapon state, that cow is out of the barn. George W. Bush already ruined that opportunity by driving them out of the agreed framework deal uh, right. back in 2002 and three. But still, I bet we could have come to a deal where, all right, you keep the one or two you have, but you quit making more and, you know, we'll give exactly. you some, some more whatever compromises, this and that. That agreed framework deal was perfectly fine before Junior ruined it. And it just seems like, well, I don't really understand. Do you have a theory as to why the administration has decided to just punt this issue 
to Jeb or Trump or Hillary or whoever comes next for this entire presidency? Well, I think it's a, it is, it is a quandary. I mean, I agree with you that North Korea would seem to be an easy diplomatic victory, except the, in the eyes of, uh, of the world, North Korea is, you know, is the villain. And, um, I'm not sure how much support there would be in Washington to engage because the way that North Korea has been so badly vilified, um, I think that, uh, you know, one theory is that uh, in its pivot to Asia, um, where 60% of the U.S. Air Force and, and Navy will be um, in the Asia Pacific by 2020, which is, you know, just four years from now, um, that in its containment of China, that it has a very nuanced relationship, the frenemy relationship with China. And so North Korea just happens to play a very um, convenient boogeyman that allows uh, the regular conduction of uh, U.S. military exercises with its allies, with Japan and South Korea, right near China's border. Um, and that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's much easier to justify this military buildup when there is uh, a hated enemy like North Korea mm-hmm. versus um, versus China. Well, which... it helps prevent the reunification of the Korean Peninsula as long as there's a crisis. Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. that's that's really the big deal that they would never say on TV is that the Pacific Ocean belongs to America. And that includes right. everything on the west end of it, too. And right. and so um, two Koreas is easier to handle than one. If if you had a united Korean peninsula with the South's economy and the North's nukes, now you have a whole new power in the Pacific that you got to deal with. Keep them divided, right. keep them conquered, even if the North is sitting on some A-bombs. Right, absolutely. Wow, the American Empire is run by some real cynical bastards, it seems like. <laughs> and, you know, well, Gordon I mean, Prather used to... I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, unfortunately, it's um, it's what's driving our economy. I mean, you know, arms exports is... <laughs> I don't know if it is the, but it is one of the key exports. And so we have to maintain um, crises all around the world so that we can continue to maintain our economy. And I think that is what's truly sad. Mm-hmm. And um, and we, you know, desperately need to change that around. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Gordon Prather used to point out uh, a press conference, a joint press conference between George W. Bush and I believe it was President Roe at the time where... The president misunderstood Bush and said, I'm sorry, did you just say that we could have reunification talks at the same time or even prior to having some nuclear talks? That's great. We want to do that. And Bush said, (laughs) no, that is not what I said. Damn it. And pounded his hand on the on the uh, podium and said, no, what I said was, you know, they must accomplish all nuclear talks first, and only then will we allow any other negotiations to take place. And this is, of course, after he personally has already forced the North Koreans out of the agreed framework and the nonproliferation treaty, created the crisis, and said only after they bow to all of our demands now, only then can you guys talk about reunification. Oh, I know. I mean, it is. I mean, and that's where I think it's, incredibly important and thank you scott for bringing in that history is 
that at the time when North Korea landed on the Bush administration's axis of evil, that there was a, an incredible historic engagement, you know, with Kim Dae-jung and between North and South Korea, they signed the June 15 accord, which began the process of reconciliation and reunification. The uh, Kim Jong-il and Kim Dae-jung, the South Korean president at the time, um, agreed to begin the process of uh, family reunifications, civil society uh, engagement, um, you know, the in, uh, integration of their economy through the beginnings of these joint uh, economic zones, such as Kaesong, and, um, and that, you know, they would decide, let the future decide, but that these important steps were needed to begin that process. And this was completely jettisoned by the, um, by the Bush administration. And so when we say that there needs to be peace on the Korean Peninsula, it's not just the, the domestic motivations or the efforts of North and South Korea. It has to include the United States because we, um, as a signatory, as a kind of um, superpower in the region, as a, a, you know, a signatory of a mutual defense treaty with South Korea, we have been playing a huge role. And uh, we have to um, put pressure on our own government to realize that as a signatory to this armistice, we have a responsibility to end the Korean War. And, you know, the thing that I find also interesting about North Korea's timing of, of this nuclear weapons test, I think has a lot to do with uh, the recent Comfort Woman deal that was signed between South Korea and Japan. Um, the uh, as, as you may or may not know, um, just uh, about a week ago, South Korea signed uh, a deal basically uh, absolving Japan of uh, its historic war crimes against uh, these women, 200,000 women. And, you know, gave up, uh, you know, gave up this, you know, the fight that, uh, you know, these comfort women, these grandmothers in their 80s and 90s who have uh, valiantly spoken up about the horrors that they experienced um, when they were sex trafficked by the Japanese military and wholesale just like threw them under the bus. And, um, you know, we see um, in, in news reports that, you know, the U.S. is applauding this. And that's because the issue of the comfort women has been a major uh, sore in the trilateral alliance. It, you know, the way that the U.S. sees uh, as a uh, as the bulwark against uh, a rising China is containing through South Korea and Japan. And if they're, if these allies that they depend upon to basically be a front against China can't even get along or can't even communicate or can't be in sync because they can't get over this comfort women issue. And now, um, South Korea basically has gone along with the U.S. program. And, you know, it's, I, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I'm sure North Korea views that as okay. Um, they're, they're, uh, they're emboldening and, um, and we have to, we have to flex our military might to show that we will use all deterrence possible, um, in the case of some kind of military intervention for regime change. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, um, 
It's just like that movie 13 Days or whatever where all these things are language, setting off nuclear bombs. This is how we send messages. I know. That kind of thing. Like imprisoning millions of people is how we teach the children what's right and wrong. I know. I um, know. That's how they I do know. it. So, so yeah, it does make sense that if the South Koreans are going to capitulate, then the North Koreans say, well, that's something we would never do. Watch us. We'll split some atoms and, and prove our point. And, you know, just for the politics of the deal, you know, and, and isn't well, it the case, yeah. Christine, I'm totally ignorant about this. I'm sorry. But isn't it the case that the South Korean regime is actually they're the descendants of the Vichy puppet government under Japanese occupation? And it's the North Korean government are the ones who are the descendants of those who fought them off during World War Two. Well, yes, yes. Park Geun-hye's father, Park Jung-hee, um, was trained and uh, in the Japanese police, by the Japanese police. And um, yes, I mean, he would, would be considered, uh, in, in modern-day language, a Japanese collaborator. Um, you know, he was a dictator. All that right, y'all, you're going to have to hear the rest of this interview in the archives at scotthorton.org. While you're there, there's another 4,000 interviews. So, yeah, she here. is a descendant of that. And Back in yes, a minute with Shea Machine Riley. That Kim Jong-il is a descendant of Kim Il-sung, who... Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrenSCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrenSCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. DarrenSCoffee.com. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Next up, it's Shea Machine Riley. He's got a blog at liberty.me called Convergent Interests. And uh, this one is also running at the Ron Paul Institute website. Um, it's called Dollar Dominance. Deconstructing the Myths and Untangling the Web. Very interesting piece. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Hey, Scott. How's it going? It's going real good. Um, very interesting piece. And in fact, um, I guess maybe we'll get back to this later on in the interview, but the same sort of ideas were discussed a little bit yesterday with Brad Hoff on the show in the context of uh, the new Hillary emails, which reveal uh, the French worry that if... Libya created a new gold do- uh, gold-backed dollar dinar uh, for Africa. That that would supplant the French franc that circulates as a dominant currency in the francophone countries in Africa, as they call them, and how that was a big part of why the French were determined to have their war on Gaddafi back in 2011. So um, I think, uh, well, that just you know gets everybody on the same page as far as. Um, uh, you know, these kinds of issues or thinking about these kinds of issues and, and the role of um, demand for dollars in various wars. And so maybe we can get back to the Libya war 
uh, and that discussion later on in the interview. But this is, of course, a big subject of discussion among uh, anti-war activists and, and has been, and among libertarians really for a long time, is the role of the petrodollar or the role of, of oil in uh, propping up the dollar. Uh, as you say at the beginning of this article here, it's kind of a mystery why the world doesn't reject our paper dollars at this point. They keep taking them no matter how many trillions our government prints. And so people think, well, it's because we have this deal with the Saudis that they will buy uh, or that they will uh, denominate all their oil sales in dollars. Uh, is that right? Well, I mean, it's certainly uh, correct that that's a misconception that's uh, shared. That's pretty uh, pervasive, actually, um, amongst well, I would say amongst laymen, but even some wonks, you know, have to question the idea whether or not it's true. Um, and that's really what, you know, what compelled me to write the piece. Well, it's good. You go back in history to the end of Bretton Woods, too, and uh, Nixon closing the gold window. And I think that's pretty much a popular form of this story is that, well, when Nixon took us off the gold standard, he sent Kissinger over to Arabia to make a deal and put us on ultimately an oil standard right and that's and that's the big misconception right there um and it's really it's not just it's not just factually incorrect um but it's also it belies a a certain misunderstanding of how the politics works and how the dollar works so um when we came off the gold standard everybody came off the gold standard with us right um and there was no fear, no real fear of the currency being rejected by anybody. Uh, the, you don't need to protect a currency, a currency's value, if you're not inflating the currency. And the way that we, the way that we check that, the way that it's been done historically, is that in order to inflate our currency, we need to use debt instruments. And so the government can't just print the money. It has to finance it. And what the petrodollar agreements actually served to do was to finance the, the ongoing deficits after the closing of the gold window. Um, it wasn't necessarily to protect a vulnerable position. And that's really that's that's the big problem is that when you have these sort of mythologies, they redirect us from from the truth. Um, the myth, it, it gives the impression that. The U.S. needs to protect the dollar somehow, and it, it directs focus away from the truth about what U, U.S. foreign policy is all about. And it also lends credibility to the view that there, you know, that we're all run by central bankers, and it it shifts responsibility for you know massive amounts of monetary expansion to you know to some bankers and away from the people who are actually responsible, meaning the Congress. Bingo. Okay, but now, so, it, but if what you're saying is that it's important that the Saudis denominate their oil sales in dollars because then they just spend those dollars buying U.S. debt, or I guess you're saying it doesn't matter uh, what they denominate it in as long as they keep buying U.S. debt, but isn't that ultimately the same thing, propping up the dollar by buying the debt? Well, it, creating it, it, that artificial demand for it? It was until we figured out a new way to finance the debt. You see, the, the global financial system didn't exist in 1971. 
the way it exists today. Um, the, the G7 didn't even meet for the first time until 1975. And they started the close coordination, which is essentially the way that we, you know, we manage the currency. They started that in the late seventies and into the eighties. And, and now the petrodollar is pretty irrelevant. Uh, we don't have any need to keep our interest rates low by coming up with ways to, to ensure that our debt, um, can be financed because if we need to, the central banks in other countries or in the EU or, you know, anyone entrenched in the system is going to, you know, with, with close coordination with the Fed is going to prop this, prop it up. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 you. So I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but basically what happens is when there's a problem, when there's a problem with interest rates, we need interest rates to be lower. Central banks from around the world get together at these forums and it's all open. I mean, it's all open forums. The coordination is all disclosed. There's no question about whether or not central banks are helping, helping each other out, protecting each other's currencies. And sometimes they do do some under the table dealing, but it's never really so far out of reach that uh, a little bit of internet searching can, can help you find it. But the way that, the way that, uh, countries protect their currencies, the way that the U.S. protects its currencies, is just by swapping reserves and using those reserves as a, as a foundation to inflate. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, so, um, geez, I guess I really don't know that much about this, but it said that Saddam Hussein was determined to switch from dollars to euros. Is that completely there, beside the motivation for war? Well, I don't think, I don't think that it's a, a really big factor and really the reason that I don't is because the evidence supports so strongly that there were other considerations. Um, he did. It is true that he was going to start accepting his uh, start accepting euros for his oil. But really, it doesn't seem like that was a threat to the dollar was ever a threat to the dollar. Um, and so if it did play a role in policies, make policymakers decisions to invade Iraq, then it was really more because the act was a was an act of impunity against right. against the empire. It wasn't. It was never. Uh, it was never a question of well, if he comes off the dollar, then all these other countries are going to come off the dollar, and then all the, all you know, all the bad things are going to happen. And and yeah, the spending on the war was a lot more of a problem than something like that. <laughs> but yeah, as you said, symbolically, for someone who used to be a cooperative little sock puppet dictator to be talking back and standing up. And especially after years of this, that kind of thing, it becomes intolerable just from a imperial point of view. Never mind dollars. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Saddam and his big mouth. And <laughs> I seem to remember his beret and clean-shaven chin and military fatigues instead of a beard and robes and a suicide belt. Yeah. I might be remembering that wrong. Let me think back. It's been a while. All right. Anyway, um... So let's see, we're almost at the break here. So when we get back, then, um, well, actually, right now, I'm going to ask you to make sure and go to antiwar.com and look at Brad Hoff's article real quick. I've already, already read it. And then I'm going to ask you about Libya and, and Iran and, and some of this other stuff on the other side of this break. It's Shay Machine Riley writing at convergentinterests.liberty.me and also today at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity website. We'll be right back after this. 
Oh, dollar dominance, the article is called. Don't you get sick of the Israel lobby trying to get us into more wars in the Middle East? Or always abusing Palestinians with your tax dollars? It once seemed like the lobby would always have full-spectrum dominance on the foreign policy discussion in D.C. But those days are over. The Council for the National Interest is the America lobby, standing up and pushing back against the Israel lobby's undue influence on Capitol Hill. Go show some support at councilforthenationalinterest.org. That's councilforthenationalinterest.org. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, kids, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. I'm talking with Shea Machine Riley. He's got a blog at liberty.me called Convergent Interests. It's convergentinterests.liberty.me. And this one is also running today at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. It's called Dollar Dominance, Deconstructing the Myths and Untangling the web. And uh, so now, um, before we get to the Libya thing, I wanted to mention to you um, uh, just previous history in in uh, talking about this. Um, Robert Higgs, I can't really claim to have understood exactly what he said because he's too smart for me. But Robert Higgs, you know, basically disagreed with this whole, you know, petrodollars, you know, propping up the petrodollars behind the war thesis all along as well. Um, you know, which I would say tends to lend credence to your point of view. I don't know if y'all's arguments exactly coincide, but I bet they do in, in quite a way. I think I do remember him saying that, you know, whatever demand for the dollar exists because of a deal with the Saudis to buy oil with it is negligible. It probably isn't even a percentage point of anything for counting for anything. So that was way back. And then I also wanted to mention this interesting story of the guy's name. Oh, man, I remembered it last week when I was thinking about this. It was Chris something or other who uh, was a Brit who had proposed the idea of an Iranian oil bourse where they would basically open up their own market instead of selling their oil on the London market. And people were saying, oh, man, look, you know, this is one of the reasons that they want to bomb Iran so bad is because they want to, you know, try to undermine you know, the, the American, uh, you know, hegemony or whatever. And it was a Brit who came up with it, and I interviewed the guy, and he was like, oh, geez, people think that? Well, you know, I think he was concerned that maybe his own government thought that. And he said, I just thought it was an interesting idea. You know, I didn't, I wasn't trying to undermine anybody's empire or anything, guys, I swear. And it shouldn't anyway, it, you know. You know, the pe- people people need things to be really simple and really clear to them. And it's really easy to say this, these three things happened in order. And so it must be that this is why it happened. And that's just so short sighted and naive. And it, you know, it, it belies a misunderstanding of the way the whole global financial system works. Um, and, and it's, it's dangerous because now we focus, we focus on that and we take our eyes off the ball. Mm-hmm. 
And it's really self-refuting in the first place, isn't it, that you would have a Bush cabinet meeting where they sit around saying, geez, guys, what are we going to do to prop up the dollar? (laughs) You know, these guys are magic. They're the kings of the universe, and they can do anything with their will and their guns, and they know that, and that's all that counts to them. Well, I mean, and that that's true, except it, it only goes so far, and I talk a, a little bit about in the piece um, what, what the real threat to U.S. hegemony, uh, US hegemony is, and, and it's not the petrodollar or country selling oil for things other than dollars. Uh, it, it's actually countries starting to uh, peel off diplomatically in, in terms of foreign policy um, because – you know, and, 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 and the Libya war is a great example of how, of how this, this all works. You know, the U.S. foreign policy is very, very, very much a part of a, a greater Western foreign policy, which includes the EU, which includes Japan, um, really the, the countries of the G7, the largest economies in the world. And, when a foreign policy decision is made, you'll you'll notice that they, the countries in the G7 really never fall out of line with what's going on. Um, they always support the same side, and they that's true economically too through the Bretton Woods institutions. And so the real challenge is going to be to the Bretton Woods institutions, um, although they're not going to lose their, any they're not going to lose any of their power anytime soon because they just have too much of the the global economy, um, but the IMF and the World Bank mainly. And you, you see the influence that the IMF and the World, World Bank, the European economies have over US, U.S. foreign policy, and it's blatant. It's not even a question. And so, you know, I feel like when you have to make things up or, or, or claim that the reason that po- foreign policy decisions are made is because of this idea that doesn't even seem seem to be relevant and seems like it it would be such a massive cover up that it couldn't work. Um, it, it just doesn't hold any water, especially when you have things in front of your eyes that show you how it works. Mm. And you're saying in Libya, obviously the major interest here was just in what the French wanted to do, and they were asking us to come along with them, and so they said yes. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's there are other considerations too. There was lots of uh, of obviously we know that the State Department was involved in that decision, um, very highly involved in that decision. Um, we know that there are other interests, and that's really the goal, right? It's it's too complex to pin any any one decision that's you know that's made on one special interest. You have to take it in altogether. But yes, Brad Hoff's excellent article that describes what the particular dollar interests in Libya were, namely the French dollar interests, um, is one of the factors of consideration uh, that caused us to want to enter the war. And um, and so that's, would you call it a petro-franc, or how does that work, this French franc? Even though they're on the euro, they have a French government currency that is still the currency for what they call francophone Africa. Yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day, it's really just the the empire exhibiting its influence, right? So, do the French really have to worry about that so much? It's it's in this regard, it's it actually is a little bit more simple than that. 
and, and that you got to figure when these politicians go into a room, there's not a lot said. You know, um, they have some things on their mind and they talk about it. And if it comes, you know, if a question comes up about the impunity of a of a of a nation regarding the way that they're supposed to be governed by the, the IMF and the World Bank and the and the G7 and NATO and you know the U.S., then that's probably the biggest the biggest factor when these decision makers decide what to do, right? Is well, if this if this person's not doing what we want, well, then we need to get rid of them because we have that power. We just wave our magic wand and it happens. And, uh, and they have the money to back it up because again, they control so much of the global economy. So, and no matter what the consequences are, great. We can attack those consequences too. (laughs) Well, yeah, there's that, but, uh, it's certainly not, no, I don't, think that anyone in these situations are thinking, oh, well, we got to protect this because it's all going to fall apart sometime soon. You know, if we <laughs> if, if we don't do something now, then the, then the petrodollar uh, or the Frank Franco petrodollar or whatever um, is going to be a is going to be a problem. Uh, now, if you look at what's happening in the BRICS countries, that's a lot. That's that's a much bigger factor as far as what you know, the U.S. government and the G7, the West, in quotes, um, should be worried about. Uh, well, and I wonder about that because their economies have their own problems big time, right? Well, they do have their own problems. And that's why that's why, you know, the, I don't know if you noticed the stock market. It didn't go down or it, 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 it plummeted today. It didn't go down at the end of the year, but pretty much starting at the beginning of the year, reflecting on the uh, Chinese economy, which is in the, in the middle of a collapse right now, the the Dow is down, I think, what, uh, maybe something like 9%, 8%, 9% on, on the week. And it, uh, you know, it, it what's going to happen is, see, China, they have our reserves that they've inflated their currencies on. So it's not like they're in a position to sell off anytime soon. But what they are doing is that they're trying to build a new network uh, a new financial network of com- competing countries that's going to give those countries a little bit more autonomy in in the way that they deal in the global market. But it's it's not there is no real threat to the dollar's position as it stands because, like I said, if the if China decided to sell all their all their dollars today, then they're you know they've got they've got I think three tr- three trillion right now. And dollar reserves, they've inflated their entire economy on those reserves. They're in, they're in the same rickety financial system that we all are in. And probably and so, much worse. I mean, they you think a government control of the economy here in the United States and the amount of influence they have, it's nothing compared to the Politburo there in China. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, now compared true. to how it was under Mao, forget about it, but, um, that's, you know, <laughs> Mao that's, is the argument ad absurdum. And what they have is, you know, if we have distortions in our real estate markets, then we have to come up with a whole new term for what they have. And they are sitting on gigantic bubbles, you know, unheard of bubbles just waiting to collapse. That That's very, very true. But the one thing that China has going for them is that they have a productive sector. And so their, the, re, the reorganization, the restructuring of their economy is going to involve a lot of um, Chinese workers being able to afford the goods that they're making for America 
because the the their currency is going to rise essentially. It is going to it is going to be a massive restructuring. There's going to be a lot of displacement, but what's what the result is going to be that Chinese workers can afford the goods that they're making, and it's you know it's the U.S. that's going to have to go through the restructuring to develop a productive sector again. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we got to go. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right, so that Shane Machine Riley, he's writing at liberty.me, and um, it's convergentinterests.liberty.me, dollar dominance, deconstructing the myths and entangling the web, and it's also at the Ron Paul Institute site. We'll be right back with Greg Archetta right after this. Hey, you own a business? Maybe we should consider advertising on the show. See if we can make a little bit of money. My email address is scott at scotthorton.org. Hey, I'll Scott here. On average, how much do you think these interviews are worth to you? Of course, I've never charged for my archives in a dozen years of doing this, and I'm not about to start. But at patreon.com slash Show, you can name your own price to help support and make sure there's still new interviews to give away. So what do you think? Two bits? A buck and a half? There are usually about 80 interviews per month, I guess, so take that into account. You can also cap the amount you'd be willing to spend in case things get out of hand around here. That's patreon.com slash Show. And thanks, y'all. All right, y'all, welcome back. Yeah, I went into the break there with uh, Shea Machine Riley. You'll have to check out the archive at scotthorton.org later on here at the end of it there. Good stuff. All right, next up is Greg Arquetto. Very interesting piece here. Um, it's at SoftRep, which I think I used to know what that stood for. Special Forces type uh, website, something. Um, and Greg is a former State Department and Defense Department official who it says here specializes in security cooperation issues in the Middle East. He has an archive at thereasonablerepublican.com and at Human Events. But check this out. The title of the article is The Conscience of an Arms Dealer. How a bombed airport in Yemen and my year with Rand Paul made me quit the Pentagon. All right. You got me interested. <laughs> Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing excellent. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate that. Uh, appreciate you joining us today. Um, so, uh, I guess, start with Yemen. Uh, what was your job? What were you doing there, starting when? So, I, I moved from the State Department to the Defense Department in 2010, and the portfolio that I took over was Yemen, and it was right at the time, uh, I described in the article, it was right after the uh, the underwear bomber, uh, had tried to blow up a flight um, above Detroit on Christmas in uh, 2009. And uh, his extremism and the type of explosive was actually traced <clears throat> back to Yemen. Um, so one of the things that we were tasked with doing was create standing up um, a train and assist program uh, replete with arms and, and training uh, for the Yemeni military uh, so as to combat um, terrorists in Yemen and in that region. Um, so I was there. I started in mid-2010, and that was my first trip out to the region was, was in 2010. And that's when I saw you – know, I spent the better part of a week out there, actually over a week. And um, like I said in the article, I saw almost a comical concoction of solutions from previous aid packages that just – they weren't working as, uh, you know, as they were expected. And so you see these – yeah, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and so there were – previous good intentions I was seeing, and it was it was uh, not less than optimal, to say the least. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, uh, but just to clarify, your job was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for what? No, 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 no. So I worked for Defense Security Cooperation Agency, which is a subset of 
Office of Secretary of Defense. Okay. And uh, I was an action officer tasked with creating these programs um, and helping manage them once they got off the ground in conjunction with the State Department and uh, other folks within the Pentagon. Okay. And um, and then, yeah, as you say, I thought of Harry Brown when I was reading this. He used to say, the military, come on, it's nothing but the post office with M-16s. And, <laughs> and it sounds like the post office was running American operations in Yemen over there, huh? Well, I think one one of the biggest issues I saw, Scott, was the fact that government had just gotten so huge that one hand literally didn't know what the other hand was doing, um, and that was one of the problems. When we, I think I highlighted uh, in the middle of the article, we would try to put our proposals up through the, the chain of command, and they would go off into a black hole, and we wouldn't see them for months. And the issue with that was, you know, a lot of these programs that you have to put together have very long lead times with respect to contracts, um, so that's not very helpful for getting it, all the contracts put in place and everything that you need to do. I mean, this is stuff that goes on for years once you get the ball rolling. So it's a very long logistical process. Uh, but it was hurry up and wait for four months and then, you know, hit the ground and move before the, the funding and the authorization expired. It was, it was just, it was not run well, in my opinion. Okay, but so we know we have the CIA and the Air Force are running the drone war at the time. Um, but what exactly, you guys are working with the, uh, Yemeni government, the Sala government at the time, to do what exactly? At the time. So essentially, when we trace these threats back to the region, um, we have a lot of partners throughout the region and throughout the world that we would have military-to-military ties with. Um, a lot of these places, some of the best ties that we have are, are formally diplomatic, but the best ties we have are between the military. Um, with Yemen's military, people tend to see uh, another country's military and think of it as our own, with you know, specific units and, and specific uh, titles and jobs and, and missions. Um, but a lot of these uh, third world countries, it's a bunch of guys cobbled together, you know, mismatched uniforms. It's, it's not what you think. Um, so it's, it was really kind of culture shock when you see a lot of these different militaries that are that are not you know up to snuff as good as ours. Um, and you, you have to work with them. And so they're all a lot of them are in uh kind of different levels of expertise uh but in other words you're giving them guns that they can't fire and trucks that they can't drive well no not necessarily we try to build them up as best you can uh but the issue that i saw is we were kind of trying to go from instead of a crawl walk run approach we were going from crawl to straight sprint and that's not conducive to spending taxpayer dollars wisely as evidenced by what i wrote in the article Hmm. um that that was just one of the frustrations that that i had Hmm. And now, I'm sorry, it's been a couple of days since I read this thing. I'm trying to remember. I think you did talk about in here, didn't you, that Sala had his own agenda, which didn't really have much to do with worrying about al-Qaeda. His problem was his now allies, the Houthis, that he picked four wars with and I believe lost four times. Were you there? You were there during at least one of those, right? No, I was uh, actually, I highlighted in the article, I was there in, in between uh, the end of the I think it was like the fifth or sixth Houthi war, and then the Arab Spring in the beginning of 2011. So oh, right, got there right <laughs> after the last war against the Houthis. Yeah, it uh-huh. was going to get. It was about as peaceful as it was going to get. Um, but yeah, that was one of the issues. Was it wasn't that they weren't they were concerned about uh, terrorists in their backfield and ungoverned spaces in their country. It's just that that wasn't their top priority. And anybody that had been there for any amount of time, and you talk to them, they're like they they, they don't see it like that. We're coming in there and telling them, here's the stuff, and you need it to do X. And they're saying, well, I don't really see that as big of a problem. I'll take it, and then I'll do what I want with it. Um, so it was, it was kind of 
the, the two missions were not matched up optimally. That's the best way I could put it. They, mm-hmm. they had different, different ideas. Right. Now, I guess I think I've learned this, but I've repeated it enough times that now it's sort of just a cliche and I want to make sure the truth of it. Is it really right to say that in all these attacks against the Houthis that Sala really just ended up making them more powerful each time he lost and that that's what led to the current situation? Well, I'll tell you, there, there's a great book on uh, the, the Sala regime and Yemen in general. It's called Dancing on the Heads of Snakes. And if you really want to wrap your mind around how Yemen works, I would highly recommend that book if you want to get into the politics of, of Yemen and its history. Um, basically, this guy was playing all sides for many, many years. And that's what I, I highlighted in the article about the uh, the tribal intrigue. Um, it got to the point where Salah was buying off his allies, his tribal allies, with arms, and his enemies with arms, and they were uh, uncomfortably bumping into each other at the same place to go pick up their guns. Now, this is, this is prior to uh, our involvement. But this was this was kind of the tribal intrigue that was going on. So he was playing all sides, and he was really adept at it. Um, and that was the other thing is he was not necessarily a, a, a you know a fun guy to be around, but he happened to be the partner that uh, the U.S. government wanted to partner with in, in Yemen. And obviously, he's not there now. He's it's, a, it's another ungoverned space. It's a huge mess over there now that uh, uh, the Houthis took over, and it's you know, a proxy war for the Saudis and the. Iranians and whoever else wants to mix it up over there, and, and unfortunately the Yemeni people suffer. So, yeah, and Saleh has allied with the Houthis and brought some army divisions with him. Yeah, he will, but he was un, he was unpleased. He was not very pleased that he was kind of pushed out uh, during the Arab Spring, and he tried to hold on. Um, but again, this goes back to I, I, again I can't say enough about the the book um, because it shows you how it goes back into the history of Yemen when Yemen was uh, separated. Uh, in the 90s, and the South was actually a, a, a communist state, uh-huh. um, and how the Southern tribes don't trust the Northern tribes, and yeah, but he he had been he had been playing with the playing the strings for a long time and pulling the strings. All right, so, well, we got to pause and take this break for just a minute, but when we get back, we're going to talk with Greg Arquetto a little bit more about his career in the Defense Department and how it came to an end. Rand Paul, Hillary Clinton, and Libya. The Conscience of an Arms Dealer is the article. It's at softrep.com, S-O-F-R-E-P.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at ScottHorton.org or TheWarState.com. Hey, all Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. Eye on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday. And The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Talking with Greg Arquetto about this article he wrote, uh, The Conscience of an Arms Dealer, How a Bombed Airport in Yemen 
And my year with Rand Paul made me quit the Pentagon. He was helping coordinate all the efforts in the terror war over in Yemen um, over the last few years there. And we were talking about the Salah's war against the Houthis and and all the problems that came with that and him playing all sides. But I wanted to ask you about the fight against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula as well uh, from back your time there. And I'm sorry, you don't really get into this too much in the article, but still, you were there and that was your job. So I'm interested. Um, uh, it seems like al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, as you say, they were a problem already, you know, before you got there in uh 2010, but uh, it seems like they're far bigger now. And I wonder if you chalk that up to America attacking them all the time and killing innocent civilians while doing so, or whether you would blame kind of what you describe in the article as a bureaucratic inability to wage an effective fight against them. Well, I think, Scott, part of it is just a failure of strategy. And one of the things that we try to take is lessons from our our other allies who have been fighting this, uh, the terror fight as well, and one is from the Israelis, and they'll tell you when you cut off one head, three mo- more grow in its place. And so it does become to a point where it feels like it's self-defeating, and you are exacerbating the problem. I think part of it was also the fact that Yemen was never really well-governed to begin with, um, so whatever cancer was going to fester was going to fester more easily there. Um, I, obviously, there are always second- and third-order effects when you take kinetic action. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think we have thought through as a, uh, a national security establishment uh, very well how that uh, affects our strategy and the enemy strategy. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the biggest frustrations I had was basically, it, it, as I highlight later in the, in the article, um, it was evident to me after a while that there was, there was really no top-level driven strategy and that was that was the most exasperating part for me was the meeting that I highlight later on when we were talking about an overall Levant strategy, which is the, the, the region of Iraq, Syria, just a, a Middle East strategy. And the folks from the White House came in and basically said, well, uh, just give us a bunch of options and then we'll tell you what the strategy is. And I, I was looking at my boss at the time and I said, that's not really how this works. You give us the strategy and then we salute smartly and move out. Uh, so that that was a huge, uh, huge kind of uh, um, disappointment. Well, I mean, yeah, even on the face of it, we're fighting on both sides of the Yemen war right now as we're fighting al-Qaeda's worst enemies, the Houthis, uh, with the Saudis and with literal and and apparently large al-Qaeda gains on the ground, seizing towns, singing, seizing uh, ports and uh, weapons magazines from the military and this kind of thing. Uh, at the very same time, just in the last couple of weeks, there were reports of CIA drone strikes against al-Qaeda targets. Well, I've not seen those, but I do know that because Yemen is, is such a, a, a soup of just um, various different factions with respect to uh, who the Iranians may be backing, uh, the Houthis, their own personal agendas. You know, they'll take help from the, the Iranians, but then they may have their own agenda. Um, I mean, a lot of these these. Uh, conflicts you're seeing right now is this is a proxy war between Sunni Saudi regime and Shia Iranian regime. And this is a battle that's been fought for 1400 years. And we're trying to mix it up and get involved. And unfortunately, having, you know, trying to drop democracy in a box in there uh, and think it's going to work in over the course of 10 years uh, mm-hmm. is frankly ludicrous. Well, and you know, that's one of the reasons. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, I was going to say, that's just, it's, it's, 
we, we need to be rethinking this. And that's actually one of the things that I found so refreshing is my time with Senator Paul is, you know, I, I was a good fit for his office when I came on board and trying to kind of um, give him advice on foreign policy and national security issues. I tried to boil it down as much as I could, and it was a good exercise for me as well. Um, and I, I essentially told him, I said, sir, if we're going to get involved in a war, our national security establishment should be asking three questions. What is the national interest? What is the military objective? And what is the exit strategy? And you know, not only have we not answered those questions in most of these conflicts we've gotten into, we haven't even asked them. And that's one of the reasons why you know, it's just been so frustrating for a lot of folks um, at the, the action officer level, even middle management within the, the national security establishment that are just frustrated to the point where some people quit, like I did, just because you, know, you, you need leadership and, and we're not seeing it. Well, so, yeah, let me ask you more about uh, Rand Paul, because he certainly was good on Libya in 2011, and he's good certainly on war against the western half of Syria. That is, he's opposed to bombing Assad. Um, but then again, he's not Ron either, and he's been very hawkish on the Islamic State, uh, which could include war, another war in Libya. Uh, I don't know if he, you know, has said he's for that or not. And he came out and just outright lied about a bunch of make-believe reasons to oppose the Iran deal when he opposed that. And I wonder, what's your read on him, uh, uh, you know, in terms of foreign policy? Does he seem very principled to you? Or, I mean, obviously he's the son of Ron, so he can see these things, uh, like you're describing about, you know, how counterproductive, you know, the Hillary strategy is, for example. But... But what about Rand? What does he really think about this stuff? I mean, frankly, he's the most thoughtful guy um, that I've worked with. And I say that with the utmost respect, and it's a great compliment. Um, if you notice, if you watch, as I do, I'm a huge consumer of information and news and politics. Um, everybody wants to be the first out of the gate to uh, tweet about something or, or get it on Facebook or whatever. Sometimes, a lot of times you have to wait to hear what Rand has to say because he's thinking it out. He's not shooting from the hip. And I think that's tremendously a tremendously effective tool um, with how he approaches issues. And so I know that he has received some, some uh, kind of backlash from uh, the libertarian base that, that he is he's not seen as as pure as his father. Uh, but I think there is a certain amount of pragmatism with respect to the national security realm. I mean, I think he's, he's hit all the right points where this needs to be Arab boots on the ground first. This is, a, this is a Middle East issue that these guys have been fighting out for 1,400 years. And they need to inevitably solve it. I mean, I think it was uh, Lawrence of Arabia who said, you know, leave this to the Arabs, however imperfect the solution would be, because in the end, it's their country and your time there is short. And I, I wish we had more people um, who paid attention to history and read this stuff at the, the, the highest levels. And, and Rand is one of those guys. I mean, he's a consummate reader. Um, I, I think that he's trying to be a thoughtful, um, thoughtful on issues of national security. Um, I don't think everybody's going to be 100% correct all the time, um, but he's certainly the most thoughtful guy out there. And then, so, what about the rest of them? I can't ask for them to be thoughtful, but are they at least just frustrated and tired of this and maybe willing to shrug and give up trying to remake the Middle East the right way at this point? The rest of who? You mean the rest of the, the national DC. battlement? Or the yeah, sure, and Congress and, you know, the people up there that you're palling around with, more or less. I mean, I, honestly, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. There's a lot of folks up there that are just in the, in the trench of 
this is the way it's always been done. I mean, it's bureaucratic sclerosis. That's the, word, the, the thing you always hear in a bureaucracy, no matter where you go. Well, this is the way it's always been done. Well, maybe we've been doing it wrong, and maybe we should try something else. Um, actually, on my blog, um, I did write about um, a policy prescription for, for dealing with uh, IS. And um, it was something that I shopped around when I was in government. I ranking enough, no one would want to listen to me. So I put it up on my blog, and I found a few months later, um, some of the stuff came true, and some of the predictions were actually spot on. And I was like, hey, this is kind of validating. It's just a shame that nobody um, with, uh, uh, I guess, uh, more clout took it hard. I mean, some folks did, um, and there were some good ideas there, but I don't know. There's, there, there are folks there that just think that um, they can reshape the Middle East in, in, in America's image, and that's one of the things that frustrated me, too. You know, I'm a Republican. Um, and traditionally, you know, Republicans believe that domestic welfare creates dependency. Then why do we think international welfare is going to be any different? Um, that just didn't make sense to me. It's inconsistent. Um, and I, I, I kind of made that point, and I said, well, all these folks that want to go out there and we need to give foreign aid to this country or that country, and, um, you know, you got to question that. It's like, well, people like you for who you are, not for what you can give them. I mean, I learned that in kindergarten. So. Sure. Yeah, and it's worse because it's it's that moral hazard, not just with regular welfare, but like with bailing out bankers and that kind of thing, where it, can, it encourages bad behavior, not just Absolutely. unwillingness to take responsibility, but a willingness to pick fights for us to fight. That's the real. Hey, listen, I really appreciate talking to you. It's been good, Greg. Thanks so much, and uh, have me on anytime. I appreciate it. Thanks for doing it. That's Greg Arquetto, former State Department and Defense Department official. The article is The Conscience of an Arms Dealer. It's at softrep.com. Check it out. See you all tomorrow.